This is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission, to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On February 28, 2020, archaeologist Chip Caldwell from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science met with a panel of Siams students and faculty to discuss his most recent book, Objects of Survivance, A Material History of the American Indian School Experience co-authored with Lindsay M. Montgomery. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned for Radio Siams. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Radio Siams. My name is Maya Diedrich, and I'm the Hirsch Postdoctoral Associate here at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest for this Radio Siams episode. Chip Caldwell is the Senior Curator of Anthropology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He is also the founding editor-in-chief of Sapiens, an online magazine funded by the Wintergren Foundation that brings anthropology to the public, and he co-hosts the Sapiens podcast. Dr. Caldwell received his PhD from Indiana University. While his work is wide-ranging, it often addresses relationships between Native Americans and the museums that hold their belongings, as well as between Native Americans and the anthropologists and archaeologists who study and represent their cultural heritage. His collaborative research projects have worked to redress extractive research programs that omit the voices of descendant communities. Dr. Kawa has published or edited 12 books, the most recent of which is Objects of Survivance, A Material History of the American Indian Experience, co-written with Lindsay M. Montgomery. As a touchstone for conversation today, we read chapter two of this book entitled Bratley's Collection in Context. The chapter describes the life and collecting habits of Jesse H. Bratley, who taught at Indian schools from 1893 to 1903, and whose collection of Native American objects is now housed at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Around the table with us today in Cornell's Landscapes and Objects Laboratory are two students who are members of SIAMS and who will be leading the discussion. They'll introduce themselves in turn as we go around the table. I'd like to start things off by asking Chip to explain the inspiration for writing this book and to describe the process that led to its production. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I'm so looking forward to this conversation with all of you. Uh, so the inspiration um, for the book really came from this collection that was at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, where I work. Uh, for a very long time, there was this um, kind of aura around this collection um, that was made by Jesse H. Bratley. Um, and it was touted as kind of one of the most important collections, um, one of the best collections at the museum, one of the best collections about um, the American Indian school experience. And yet, even as it was being touted, there was actually no evidence that that was the case, that it was actually important or what it said or anything about it. And so I kind of always had it in the back of my mind since I started working there in 2007, that this was a collection that was really worthy of understanding better. And then um, a couple of years ago, we had the chance to uh, bring on Lindsay Montgomery as a postdoc at the museum. And uh, given her interests, it just kind of everything fell into place. And so she and I began this project to unpack and understand and illuminate what this collection really is. Hi, my name is uh, Sam Disvetel. I'm a second year uh, master's student in SIAMS, and I, I'm a zooarchaeologist uh, working on um, Seneca era remains. Um, and Particularly, I'm interested in 
um, the origin of this collection. It's, um, the chapter that we read didn't go too much into detail about it, but there's a good amount, and uh, it seems like there's quite a lot of material there. You mentioned beads, basketry, pottery, um, but I feel like any discussion of these kind of collections is incomplete without getting into some of the darker history of anthropology and archaeology. And so I'm wondering if, because Bratley was interested in anthropology, even though not technically an anthropologist, and he engaged in some of their methodology, did he perhaps um, encounter and collect um, human remains, like um, skulls from graves or battlefields or anything like that? Yeah, so um, it's a great question, I think, and it really invites us to start at the beginning. And so if I could just briefly summarize uh, for listeners a bit about who Bratley was and what motivated him. And um, that background actually leads to a bit of a mystery. So um, Jesse Bratley, um, in many ways, to me, was a really um, fascinating, inspiring person who brought himself up from poverty. Um, he, he really struggled um, uh, finding his way in the world. Uh, he grew up with, with very little. His family um, were farmers, and they had one disaster after another that almost always left them on the brink of ruin. Um, he himself was a terrible student, um, really struggled with grammar and arithmetic. Um, and so he was uh, an itinerant salesman. He um, you know, was a farmer. He, 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 he had all kinds of uh, pursuits trying to find his way in the world and make a living for himself. And then one day he saw an advertisement uh, for, uh, for uh, being a... Uh, a an advertisement that was looking for Indian school teachers. Um, and this is in the early 1890s. And it kind of made sense to him. He was like, okay, maybe I could work for the government. And yet even to pass, um, uh, sort of at that time, you had to pass tests uh, to uh, qualify to be a school teacher. He barely could pass because he was such a terrible student himself, you know. And um, nonetheless, he, he persevered and uh, he became an Indian school teacher. And so in 1893, he was sent um, from his home in the Midwest out to uh, Washington State. And he became um, a teacher at uh, Port Gamble amongst the Sklalem. Um, and this is about an hour or so north of Seattle, um, to give you a sense, on the coast. And... Um, Right away, he uh, finds out that it is really hard to be an Indian school teacher. Uh, first, all the kids are gone. They're out um, uh, fishing. And then he wrangles a few kids who he says are like as wild as deer. And he can barely control them. And he gets these kids in uh, to a classroom and they end up escaping. So he ends up having to get uh, nails and he nails down the windows and locks the door. He literally has to force them in there. And he finally gets them in there. And then he realizes he can't communicate with them. They don't know any English and he can't speak their language. And so he literally has no way to communicate with these kids. And so he talks about in his diary and elsewhere, uh, an autobiography that was unpublished that um, he thought about giving up. You know, clearly this was not for him. Uh, but then he finally hit on the idea of finding an elder in the community um, who speaks uh, both the local language and English. And so with this elder, um, this woman named Anna 
um, she begins to translate for him. And so he uh, is able to finally teach these children. And so um, he perseveres and he sticks with it. And in the midst of this first experience in Washington, <coughs> a friend asks if um, he could, he could uh, purchase an uh, artifact for him. And so he buys a pestle, uh, this really beautiful kind of, um, you know, large uh, pounding tool. And um, he's so fascinated by it, he buys one for himself too. And that really begins his passion for collecting. So here's the mystery and the paradox that Lindsay and I tried to figure out. So over then the course of the next decade, he collects well more than a thousand artifacts, uh, objects, you know, heritage items from, um, from community members, um, almost always directly, you know, trading, buying things. And then he also becomes a photographer and takes more than 500 photographs of um, native life. And so the paradox is that on the one hand, his job as an Indian school teacher in this period is to forcibly assimilate these children to transform them into you know, good Christian American citizens, to bring them out of the depth of Indian culture and into mainstream Anglo society. And at the same time, he's doing that and he seems to embrace that uh, mission. He's collecting these objects of culture and heritage and tradition. And so how is it on the one hand, you have this person who is actively day in and day out trying to destroy a culture. And on the other hand, day in and day out with his collection of photography is trying to preserve it and collect it. And so that was kind of the big question that Lindsay and I um, were really trying to work through with his collection. Now, to get to, to a little more of the specifics of the collection itself, um, he, he was not, from what I can tell, really focused on sacred objects or human remains. Um, but there are a few uh, items that are deeply problematic. Um, for example, uh, there is a saddle, a horse saddle, that's in the collection uh, of the family still, of the Bratley family, um, but that Lindsay and I were able to see that says on the underside that it was, um, in handwriting, says it was taken from the massacre at Wounded Knee in 1893. So you know, this was one of the horrific, most horrific massacres against Native Americans uh, perpetrated in 1893 in the depth of winter. And um, you know, hundreds of um, Lakota Sioux were killed, and then items were looted afterwards. And so this would appear to be one of those items. And Bradley himself was aware of the massacre. He talks about in his autobiography of giving a bath to, I believe it was a young boy. And um, the young boy um, has bullet holes, um, uh, scars, and, and that he learned was from Wounded Knee. Um, and so this was something Bradley knew about. So it seems highly probable that this, this saddle really could have come from that massacre site. Um, and then he did collect human remains um, that we know also that the family has a skull, um, uh, you know, cranium that um, we don't know exactly where it came from as part of the problem. Um, the family believes it came from Rosebud Sioux. Um, but he also talks about going to um, archaeological sites on the Hopi reservation when he was there. Um, so it's possible um, that it could have come from a couple different contexts. So there are a handful of really problematic items um, in the collection, either at the museum or with the family. Um, but for the most part, he was, he was collecting more um, you know, beaded clothing, 
musical instruments, um, cook, cook, um, cookware, um, that sort of thing. Hi, my name is Caitlin Lagrasta. I'm a first year master's student in archaeology here at Cornell. I study um, Haudenosaunee material culture. Um, specifically, I'm looking at the uh, glass beads from the Gnadigan White Springs Townley Reed site sequence. Um, it's a Seneca site sequence. So the question that I have for you, um, I have three, and I'm trying to pick which one would be good. All of them are related to what you said just now, um, but I guess regarding some of the more sensitive objects or just any of the objects in general from the collection, um, have any of them be, been repatriated? Um, and if so, what was that experience like? And if not, what is preventing repatriation? Yeah, great question. And, and um, I would have to go back into our records to see um, precisely if any of Bratley's items have been returned. Um, I don't believe any have been returned um, since I've been at the museum for the last 12, 13 years. Um, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science does have a very active uh, repatriation program. Um, so that's something I've been in charge of also as a curator at the museum um, for the last dozen years. And uh, we've been um, not just active, but we've been proactive in our work. So back when I got to the museum in 2007, um, the museum had been out of compliance with the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, this 1990 federal law that compels museums to, uh, to establish a process for returning certain kinds of cultural items to tribes. And the museum was out of compliance, so it was sort of on, on its way back to um, being in compliance. And within about a year or so, my colleagues and I at the museum were able to get it fully back in, in compliance. But we asked ourselves, really, what does the future of museum anthropology look like without fully addressing its past? In other words, how could we you know, honestly go to Native partners or collaborators and say, you know, we'd love to work with you either on exhibits or programs if we hadn't fully tackled the legacy of these collections um, that we know are so problematic for so many Native peoples. So the museum, rather than kind of waiting, you know, sitting on our heels or sitting on our haunches, you know, waiting for tribes to come to us to say, we would like to reclaim this item or deal with these sets of human remains, the museum took a proactive approach. And so what that meant was um, we were, as a museum, were the ones that went out to tribes and said, we have these items or we have these um, sets of human remains of these ancestors, um, what should we do? And so we held a series of consultations, um, typically at a regional level, because a lot of the human remains that we had left, uh, we couldn't pinpoint to a specific tribe or a specific place. You know, it said like Western Great Plains or from the Southwest or Four Corners, meaning, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, um, Utah, Colorado. And so it was kind of regionally done. And so uh, we consulted with um, literally hundreds of tribes over the course of a decade. And at the end of that work, we finished um, addressing all of the Native American human remains in the collection. And so now the museum does just have a handful of ancestors left, but we are all we are holding those at the request of the tribes because they, in, in almost all the cases, don't have a place um, to put them. 
um, they don't have a place to return them. Um, this is getting pretty off tangent, but this is a fascinating kind of example of that problem is we have a skull, a cranium that was collected by a zoology curator, I think it was 1923 in a place called Kivalina, uh, which is one of the northernmost villages in the Arctic in the US. And um, for you know, years, I, you know, we, this is one where we actually did know exactly where it came from. We knew, you know, the, the curator saw it eroding out of a cemetery that was eroding into the ocean, picked it up. Like this one is so, you know, clear cut. Clearly, we need to address this one. And yet I couldn't get a hold of um, the folks in Kivalina to, to work on it. And so after trying, you know, occasionally letters and a call every once in a while, um, after about, th I think it was three or four years after being at the museum, like, okay, this year, if it's the last thing I do, I am going to talk to someone from Kivalina, Alaska. <laughs> and so just every day, um, I would try, you know, three, four times calling the number I had. I tried all my contacts and networks in Alaska. And, um, I finally, you know, just one day someone picked up the phone and, um, if you ever want to have an awkward conversation, you know, try explaining to a stranger you know, on the phone, why a curator at your museum picked up a skull, you know, from a cemetery and brought it back to Denver. Um, but nonetheless, that was the conversation. And the person was distraught and wanted to do something, but it turns out Kivalina is one of these villages that are being impacted by climate change and, and rising sea levels. And so the entire village um, is being relocated uh, because it's all going to be underwater. It's just a few inches above sea level currently. So, you know, their entire lives are in chaos. And although this was um, disturbing to them, they want to do something, it just wasn't a priority clearly. And they have, you know, more important things that they need to work on, you know, with, with and for their community. So in these kinds of situations, all we can do is just continue to be a steward of the ancestor, try to, you know, uh, undertake uh, what we see as respectful curatorial practices, limiting access, you know, ensuring that there's no research or, you know, those it's not used in programs, that sort of thing, and just keeping it safe until a time might come where the community uh, wants to um, address, address this legacy. So all of this to say is that off the top of my head, I can't remember any of, of all of the remains that we did return um, we've also returned more than a thousand sacred objects and communally owned objects. Um, none immediately come to mind about Bratley. Um, and I think that's largely, um, again, Bratley really wasn't focused on, he wasn't digging up graves that we know of. Um, you know, he did visit archaeological sites, but he wasn't really digging there that we know of. Um, he was mostly buying things directly from, um, from folks who, you know, were trading willingly with him. He wasn't visiting shrines and stealing stuff, you know, as often happened in this period that we're aware of. Um, so I think that's largely it. You know, a lot of like the, the sacred objects, for example, that we've returned, um, frankly, come from just a handful of collectors that were doing really nefarious things. You know, they were, we know they were going into communities, they were stealing things, they were tricking people. You know, one example, um, just to demonstrate this, there's, there's a collector um, who probably about half of the sacred items we returned all come from this one collector. And in one story, um, he went to a village in Canada and said to the elders, I'm an anthropologist and I'd really love to study, you know, your most important sacred things. And can you bring them out 
out for me to study. And the story, at least from the descendants today, is that they didn't, the elders didn't want to, but the Indian agent really insisted and basically kind of forced people to bring them, uh, forced them to bring out all of their things. And so they brought out all of their things for him to study and left it overnight. The next morning, he is gone, as well as all of the artifacts. He ends up, um, he's a dealer. He's a, he's a you know, he, he would take these things and sell them to museums and collectors. And um, he sold dozens of things to um, a collector um, that ended up donating um, a lot of things to the Denver Museum. So those sorts of things definitely happened. Um, and we've definitely been working on it, you know, very diligently over the last 12 plus years. But in terms of Bratley, um, for the most part of the thousand objects that are at the Denver Museum, um, there's, um, there's very few that we know of that are sacred. Some of the photos, um, that's maybe an, another question or another topic, um, are really interesting because some of the photos are of sacred activities. And so how to deal with that where they're not being requested for repatriation or return, and yet they're depicting you know, sensitive things. How do you curate those? How do you use them? Do you use them or do you sequester them away? We're all questions we had to address in this project. Great, well, this is Maya again, and I'd like to ask, you mentioned that Bratley was a complicated character, that he, there was this paradox about his work versus his interests. So I'm wondering if you could explain a bit more about how he was a product of his time and what you found important to highlight about his historical context. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think he very much was a product of his time. And, um, you know, so this period where he was actively collecting and taking these photographs, 1893 to 1903, was a really seminal moment uh, for a lot of different communities. And I think you see the confluence of different um, politics and arrangements of powers and institutions emerging kind of all in this moment, a kind of crucible, you know, that uh, Bratley was right in the center of. So like one strand of that is the emergence of anthropology, you know, and in 1893, when Bratley collected that first um, basalt pestle, you know, he... Um, he didn't really have a kind of framework, a neat framework for what archaeology was or what anthropology was. Um, and yet he was really fascinated by the same kind of questions that a lot of anthropologists at that period were. And he did correspond you know, with sort of the merging anthropology class at that point. We have letters of you know, writing the Smithsonian and he was buying the books that were available at that point. <clears throat> so he really was interested in this rise of anthropology. Um, and yet he never fully transformed himself into a scholar the way some other early collectors did at that point. Another kind of strand <clears throat> is the emergence of Indian schools as a vehicle to forcibly assimilate Native Americans. And so you have the end of overt warfare and violence against Native peoples perpetrated by the U.S. government about in, with, it, with uh, Wounded Knee in 1890. It's typically kind of the end date for the Indian Wars um, that scholars use. And so at the end of the Indian Wars, the question is, you only have about 250,000 Native Americans left. What do you do with them? You know, that was the government's problem that it posed to itself. And the basic idea at that point was, well, let's forcibly assimilate Native peoples. Um, you know, Native society is going to go away. It'll, Native peoples will become extinct. The phrase at that time was kill the Indian, save the man, meaning let's kill native culture, but you know, allow the people themselves to 
to move on into the next century as long as they look like us and talk like us and believe like us. And so schools became a vital part of this mechanism to transform native peoples. And so that's yet another way um, uh, Bratley became a, um, a, a part of kind of this moment. And then another kind of strand um, that's worth mentioning is uh, very strangely, just at the moment native cultures are presumed to, to be on the verge of extinction, there uh, emerges this notion of, um, of uh, Indian aesthetics, Indian arts and crafts becoming very popular. There's something that was known as the Indian craze. Craze meaning um, kind of this fanatical attachment to Native American objects. And so um, Native American arts and crafts are used in decorating people's homes. Um, it's used, um, in, you see it in museums, you see uh, in fairs as well, in like the world's fairs, the, the use of Indian objects as a kind of, um, as a kind of um, uh, window into Native American life. And so, you know, some scholars call this imperialist nostalgia. This idea is, you know, that right as um, imperial projects are destroying something, they become fascinated by it and kind of long for the very thing that it has destroyed. And so that's also part of what Bratley um, was about. I think the way Lindsay and I try to answer this underlying mystery and paradox is that um, there's this uh, stage that has been set at a World's Fair in 1904 that I think explains how Bratley, on the one hand, could actively work to destroy culture and yet preserve the objects of it. Um, and it's in this 1904 World's Fair, you have back-to-back -back exhibits or displays. On the one hand, you have Indians from the past. So you had um, live um, sort of... Uh, 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 craftsmen and craftswomen who were making traditional objects, Native American objects. Um, and then right next to it, you had a display of an Indian school, kind of a recreated Indian school where kids were wearing Western Anglo clothing, speaking English, learning to read and write, do math, that sort of thing. And what that really allows us to do is understand how these, these, um, these notions of the Indian future embodied in the classroom and the Indian past were very intentionally juxtaposed. And we think that, Lindsay and I think that that's what Bratley was doing on the one hand, that actually the collection of the Native American past was a kind of proof or evidence of a Native American future. This, it was a kind of display to show this is what Native Americans were, but the work I'm doing as a teacher shows what Native Americans can be. So this display, in other words, is a almost physical embodiment of this notion of kill the Indian, save the man. And I think ultimately that's a, um, a kind of uh, uh, underlying ethic that motivated uh, Bratley both in his collecting as well as his teaching. Well, that actually leads pretty well into my next um, question. Um, so in, your, in the chapter two of your book, you mentioned that um, the Indian craze, as you described it, is kind of a response to like modernism, urbanism, industrialization, and like a longing for old-fashioned authenticity. Um, but my question is, 
how much of that, um, especially at these like world's fairs, um, is actually authenticity and, or do you think it might be a kind of performativity where um, the you know indigenous people put on display or the crafts made are actually meant to kind of just conform to the American imagination of the Indian? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I do think it's very much a, a kind of constructed authenticity, if you will. Um, I mean, it's very much as other scholars have described it, and I think how, how Lindsay and I look at it as well, um, you know, it's the emergence of this aesthetic and the collection of these objects to serve a particular kind of ends, uh, a particular, to address a, a particular kind of moment that Americans, non-Indian Americans, were going through and were looking for answers um, uh, for in their lives. So, you know, definitely uh, at that point you have uh, you know, industrialization, this, this urbanization, um, and a kind of um, uh, discomfort or uncertainty, ambiguity about what modern life meant. And, um, and, and because of that, there's this search for other kinds of ways of life um, that maybe seem simpler, seem more romantic, seem um, more um, connected to nature. And Native Americans and Native American culture kind of fit the bill, I think, for a lot of urban Americans at that point. So um, I think that all fed into the Indian craze. And, you know, the way that the Indian craze manifested itself in most people's homes was people had something called an Indian corner. And basically it was a corner of the home that was designated um, as a place to display one's uh, Native American objects. And it kind of recreated um, a Native American um, a home, a mini home, if you will, in a sense. You know, there was, you'd have a chair with a rug, uh, images on the wall, things hanging off it. Um, and it was a very particular kind of genre. Uh, what was really fascinating um, is that Bratley has a photo of his Indian corner. And um, you can compare what his looks like with photographs and paintings of other Indian corners from that time. And it's almost a one-to-one -one correlation. Um, you know, they have um, rugs in the exact same places. They have, um, you know, bandolier bags that are hung off a frame in exactly the same way. Um, they almost always have a photograph of an American president. Um, you know, so there's, there's like very, it's a very particular genre that people were trying to fulfill. And so I, it's exactly as, you, as you're indicating with your question, you know, this wasn't a, um, no Native American home that I'm aware of probably looked anything like that or would have, you know, those exact um, kinds of um, items or position in the exact same way. Um, so it was this constructed notion of like an Indian space that very much fit that political historical moment as well as the, the kind of aesthetics um, that emerge very specifically from the Indian craze itself. This is Caitlin again. Um, I'd like to go back to talking about the photos. And there's a photo in the chapter of two Hopi twin children. And in the caption, it says that Bradley paid each twin a box of candy for posing for the photo. And I found this really interesting and surprising, first of all, because they're children. Um, so the notion of paying children for their work might, I don't know, kind of surprised me for the time. 
Um, and I guess I also assumed that people were not paid for their work, their effort for posing for a photo or their art, um, which it seems like that was the case in certain um, circumstances, but not always. Um, so first of all, is this an incorrect assumption to make? Um, and second of all, um, was paying for time and artwork a common practice or is it unique to Bradley? Yeah, great question as well. And, um, you know, all we get from Bratley's archive are just little snippets, you know, little hints and whispers about his practices. So it, it's hard to truly generalize with certainty. Um, but yes, definitely the, we, that's, a, that's a very astute observation around that exchange, it would seem, where he is kind of trading favors uh, with people. Um, there's another one um, at Hopi uh, where um, he takes a photo of a woman breastfeeding a child. And um, part of what Lindsay and I did is this project is we went back to four of the five communities where Bratley worked at to share images and the objects, um, to interview people to understand how today uh, you know, they value and perceive these images, but also to help us interpret and make sense of what Bratley was doing. And so I point out um, that this particular image of the woman breastfeeding because um, it was a very, um, um, strong reaction from the hope from the Hopi perspective that um, people were really skeptical that a woman would have done this um, kind of willingly, you know. And so, you know, was Bratley coercing her, you know, because of implicitly because he's the Indian school teacher and maybe this is a mother or grandmother who wants to ensure that a child in the family is well taken care of. Was there payment involved? Um, we don't know, but it was precisely just the image itself evoked and provoked, you know, real hard questions about what was the nature of the exchange between Bratley and the subject. Um, so that's an example of, I think, really complicated and maybe really problematic examples of what kind of exchanges might have happened. On the other extreme, we know that um, at places like uh, Rosebud, uh, family members, uh, uh, families wanted their, their, uh, they wanted family photos. They wanted pictures taken and individuals wanted their own pictures. And so Bratley was actually, um, charging people like a dollar or 50 cents, um, for a photo, you know, so he would take a photo of them. Um, and then in other cases they would exchange, uh, items that ended up in his collection. So clothing or drums or that, that sort of thing. Um, and then in other cases, um, He's clearly taking pictures of students who would have had no um, no say in whether or not they uh, could be subjects. There was no consent, certainly, you know, when he's taking pictures of school children, especially in the context of schools. And yet he was using those images not just for, you know, Bratley aspired to maybe have a museum one day, but he was uh, selling himself as a lecturer. Um, so he's using these images publicly. Um, but he was also using these images, most likely of the school children, as evidence of his success as a teacher. So he's probably showing these images either to administrators or supporters to show, you know, see how neatly, you know, these children are dressed, see how their hair has been cut, see how they are lined up, you know, in military formation, 
as, as photographic evidence of um, his success. So all this to say, I think, you know, you're picking out that, that, that passage points to a really big set of questions around the relationship between the photographer and the subject. And, um, you know, most anthropologists for a very long time have really tangled with this uh, question because, you know, it's, it's uncertain, right, how we, we establish these relationships with the people we study and then how is it that we represent them and what is fair compensation for essentially their labor or their image that is used in collections and museums or anthropological work. And so I think what we see with Bratley is kind of the whole range of everything from probably no consent at all or even kind of compelled consent to native peoples wanting to be subjects and actually providing you know money or exchanging goods as a way to obtain photos of themselves for themselves. So we didn't necessarily get this far in the book, but it's called Objects of Survivance. And I was wondering if you could tell us why you decided to call items in the collection Objects of Survivance. Yeah, thanks for um, fast forwarding to the conclusion there. Um, so Lindsay and I spent many years trying to make sense of this collection and try to figure out what really in the end does today, does the object, do these objects and what do these images mean? You know, how can we make sense of them? What do they truly represent as a collection? And we really, um, in the end, uh, drew from the experiences of, um, of uh, our colleagues in these four native communities that we interviewed, where we, we talked about all of the horrors of the Indian school experience more than a century ago. You know, these were children that in some cases were literally forced from their families at gunpoint, um, taken to very foreign institutions. Um, you know, they often didn't speak English initially, um, you know, and then they were uh, punished if they spoke their native language. Their hair was cut without their permission. They were forced into clothes that were unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Um, and uh, because they were removed from their families, um, they lost much of their culture. And um, so the horrors of and the terrors and all the negatives of the Indian school experience were so present, you know, and, th and that's what is often emphasized about this period. But as we talk to people in these communities today, what, what emerged was a constant theme of not of what was lost, even as you can acknowledge so much was lost. What was emphasized was what was actually left, what survived despite the government's um, you know, hard work to destroy these cultures. And the ways especially in which Native peoples learned to ultimately use the education system itself as a way to, um, to uh, 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 ensure that Native communities survived economically, politically, and otherwise in, in the 20th and 21st century. And so what we, what we wanted to emphasize is the ways in which these objects and these photos, yes, they're about what is lost, but really they're about how native peoples have survived and how they've endured 
over the centuries, despite colonialism. And so we've used this notion of survivance, which has been widely used in American Indian studies and elsewhere. And um, it's the concept is um, a bit, the word's a bit clunky maybe, but you know, it's really for, um, bringing together the notion of survival and um, resistance and persistence and bringing those ideas together with the idea that people survive through resistance. And so um, that's what these kids did. You know, if you imagine literally being ripped from your family and your culture and yet finding a way to survive and you do that through resistance, that's what these objects um, show us and tell us about this moment and, and these native uh, peoples. So, um, so we've taken this concept in survivance, which has been used more talking about like religious practices as more kind of a lived lived um, strategy or lived experience and applied it to material culture and saying, how is it we can look at these objects and in what ways do the objects themselves literally embody this history, literally embody survivance? Thank you uh, for segueing into my question once again. Um, so on this topic of resistance, um, so in early in the chapter, and this refers to more the early history of the Indian schools when they're just getting started and the policies were just being passed by like the Continental Congress. Um, you mentioned that um, there were basically these treaties signed with um, some of the allied groups. Um, so like Oneida, Tuscarora, Stockbridge, who allied um, the revolutionary Americans. Um, and basically it seems like Americans thought they were doing them a favor with here's some education appropriation budget. Um, so it makes it seem like these groups were extremely willing to join, but then the children were very resistant. So were the, um, the allied Native American groups actually like enthusiastic about it at first and willing or was there still resistance even among nominal allies yeah great question and you know i think it goes back to the history of indian schools schools um that were geared towards native communities and you know there there's actually centuries of of um native american schools uh, being constructed in the United States and North America. Um, Dartmouth is a very early example. Harvard is another, you know, very early, early, you know, uh, schools built to educate um, Native community members. Um, and then when the United States is formed, um, as you mentioned, there's money set aside for Indian education. And they're, they're essentially all throughout the late 1700s and into the, into the 1800s, there are Native American schools. Those early schools, though, one, they're mostly um, missionary oriented. So it's largely um, Native Americans who are being converted and then sending their children to these schools as kind of you know, willingly because their family's converted and they see this as an opportunity for their children. Um, that's not always the case, but largely that's kind of the big picture history of that period. But really by the 1870s, um, the government takes a, quite a big turn, um, a very different tack, where it begins to see schools as explicitly a vehicle for assimilation. 
you know, this isn't just an opportunity for um, native leaders to become uh, priests or preachers or to learn to write and read English. Um, but this is a vehicle, a tool to, um, to transform native peoples away from their native cultures into essentially Anglo-Christian society. And so I, that's really where you begin this history of native children being more forcibly taken from their communities. In some of the most extreme cases, like at Hopi in Arizona, um, you had um, native leaders that uh, were putting up such a fight um, against school administrators that the parents were actually sent to prison. Um, and they, in, I think it was 14 or 19, somewhere in there, Hopi men were sent to Alcatraz where they spent more than a year in prison. Um, there are other cases where people were in prison for weeks or months at a time. Um, if you didn't send your children to school, um, you could also have your rations withheld from you. So um, uh, essentially fam you know, the threat of starvation was put upon families if they didn't send their children to school. So very serious consequences by not sending your kids to school. You know, so prior to that period, um, that, that, to my knowledge, that really wasn't happening uh, widely. Um, it was really seen as an opportunity for um, children to learn, uh, you know, the Anglo-American way of life. And indeed, I think many Native leaders saw strategically how, you know, if their children learned about Anglo-Christian society, that would position them as leaders to be able to defend their communities um, against um, you know, any kind of legal claims. They could be more savvy political leaders. Being able to speak English would empower them to negotiate. Um, so it was really kind of a, a strategic move, I think, on the part of many Native leaders. And even into the you know, late 1800s, um, many uh, Native parents did send their children to schools willingly, I think, and precisely for these reasons, that they saw that Native children who understood something about mainstream Anglo-American society could do a better job of protecting their communities. So, um, so in short, there's a, a, a real um, shift in policy, the assimilation policy that really kicks off in the 1870s and then is full on by the 1890s after the end of the Indian Wars. And that really is what distinguishes that period from the earlier periods of Indian schooling, which does stretch stretch back um, a couple centuries. Well, that wraps up our time for today. So thank you so much, Chef Cobble, for joining us for this podcast and this episode of Radio Siams. Thank you all. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast, which will be recorded and posted next month, will be with David Landon of the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.